Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Lucy Kaufman to tell us all about her book titled A People's Reformation, Building the English Church in the Elizabethan Parish, published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2023. This is a fascinating book. It fundamentally is telling the story of how the English church um, during the Elizabethan period, Elizabeth I, uh, became really the Protestant Church of England. And I think most importantly of its many contributions, I found the most compelling part to be the fact that this isn't a top-down story. This isn't a story of bishop said this, queen said this, and therefore it was done. It's also not a story that says, well, here's what happened in one particular parish. Both of those kinds of history are incredibly important. This book is masterful because it brings all of it together and tells us the top-down bits and the bottom-up bits and puts it all in perspective, looking at local stories, but also the national picture. So Lucy, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to be here. Before we dive into your fabulous book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. So my name is Lucy Kaufman. I'm a professor of early modern British history at the University of Alabama. Um, It's obligatory here to say Roll Tide. So Roll Tide. Um, I got my PhD from Yale in 2014. Um, I was also an undergrad at Yale, got my master's degree at Cambridge, Uh, And then went, uh, after a year of teaching at Clark University in Massachusetts, back to England, where I was a fellow at Keeble College for two years before getting this job in Alabama. Um, I decided to write this book is a... Uh, was a really long process. I first started thinking about this book well over a decade ago when I was a graduate student. And there were two things, uh, one intellectual and one personal that really drove my interest in this subject. Um, Intellectually, there was a big question I wanted to figure out, which was I understood very well the debates around the Reformation, the early Reformation, the split of the church, the 1530s, the 1540s. Um, And I understood really well the debates around the Civil War, um, the questions about religion and how religion played into it, how much religion played into it, etc. But what I didn't understand really was how you got from point A to point B. I didn't understand. So many of the stories of the Reformation used the Elizabethan period as a kind of epilogue, right? It was this moment where the story sort of peters out and ends, and you have this sense that there's something happening, shadowy, and maybe a little bit empty. And then when you get to the stories about the Civil War, you fast forward, and you have this sense that something happened once upon a time to make people really, really care about questions of altar rails or prayer books or Protestantism in a serious way. And I wasn't sure how we got from point A to point B. It was that hinge that's always really fascinated me. Um, I am not very particularly interested in destruction. I think questions of destruction are really easy. I'm really interested in the processes, the slow 
frankly, often quite boring processes of building of institutions and societies knitting together after moments of massive change. And there's almost no more massive change. Um, well, there are several you could have point to, but this is one, one of the major moments of massive change is the is in England and, and Britain writ large is the Reformation. So that was the intellectual puzzle that brought me to this book. Um, mm. Pers- fascinating one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's really important, right? So it's, it's this huge sort of existential question. It's, and it, was, it seemed this sort of hollow thing. I'm trained really as a, as a social historian. Um, and we can talk more about this later if you want. I always say I'm not a religious historian. I'm a social historian who's interested in religion. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the other big problems that I was facing was I was reading these brilliant pieces of social history. And uh, really important to me, people who have been personally incredibly generous to me um, and intellectually my, my, the, the, the sort of font of so much of my thought. But a lot of them didn't talk extensively about what was going on with religion. And this brings me to the personal aspect. I grew up in a small town in South Central Pennsylvania um, where religion played an enormous part in people's social cultural and political lives on an everyday basis, sort of so baked in that it was impossible to strip out and figure out where motivations came from. Teaching in Alabama, it's even more so. That's even more uh, deeply baked in. And so I began to wonder on a sort of, I saw how that worked in the modern age. And I really wanted to know how people's lives, how people experienced this change in a time when it was so deeply, deeply baked into their lives. So that was the kind of personal motivation that was doing it. But so those two things combined and brought me to this subject. Well, either of them, I can understand why you'd write a book. They're both very good motivations, <laughs> but having both of them, it's kind of like, well, you had to really. Um, and staying on this idea of kind of what drew you to it and how you approach this, I like that formation of a social historian looking at religion. You say in the book that you, quote, take the Elizabethan Reformation on its own terms in this. Can you tell us a bit about kind of what you mean by that? Absolutely. Um, I think I mean to... Interrelated. I, I mean, two different interrelated things. The first is that the Elizabethan Reformation, at its whole, was about action, not about belief. So when you predicate, and I, this is um, Ethan Shagans has something really interesting about this with the with the earlier Reformation in, in his book, which is very important to me. But I was thinking about it in a much later uh, phase when this becomes much more about policy. Uh, the Elizabethan Reformation is about trying to get people to conform to actions, to go to church, to recite the commandments, to take communion. It was not about trying, and the goal was never, at least early on, not explicitly, about making everybody a deep believing Protestant, whatever that means. Um, partially because they couldn't agree on what that meant. Um, but and I should say, you know, actions had real doctrinal and spiritual ramifications. These aren't empty actions. This wasn't miming religion. Um, I use this, my students, I, when I'm talking to my students about this, um, I often say to them about taking a communion in a different confession than your own. So, for example, a Catholic taking the, um, the uh, Elizabethan communion. I say, what if I told you that if you stood up in class right now and said to everybody in class, um, I, I, I'm, I'm doing this because I, be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about to do this thing. And you took the cross that's around your neck and you put it on the floor and you stepped on it. And if you did that, you get an A. And if you don't do that, you fail the class. 
And they all look at me sort of slightly horrified. And I say, look, you're just stepping on a piece of metal. You know, why is that? What is, what is the meaning of that? It's just an action, right? Actions have real doctrinal, spiritual, personal um, ramifications. So when I say it's about action, not about belief, I'm not saying actions are um, non-ideological. But what I'm saying is that they are quantifiable, measurable, surveillable, and it's not just a mechanistic reason for focusing on actions. There's an intellectual reason as well. So interestingly, in my research, one of the things I found is that some of the people who were most keen on it being about actions, not about statement of belief, were actually the more radical, godly wing of the church, the sort of proto-Puritans, because they didn't want, they didn't believe that this reformation was totally done. They thought this was a reformation half-formed. And the idea that they would have to get up and say, I swear on my soul that I think that everything in the Book of Common Prayer is, is correct, they couldn't do that. So they said, look, I'll use the Book of Common Prayer, but I, will, I, cannot, say, I cannot swear an oath. It's against my conscience to swear an oath saying there's nothing contrary to the word of God. So both um, more moderate and more radical Protestants were both pushing on this question of action rather than belief. And both, um, both in terms of for mechanistic reasons and for sort of ideological reasons, they're doing this. And what this means is if you, if you take this as a question of conformity of action is the goal of the church, it's actually sort of visible to historians in ways that personal belief just can't be. I would argue probably even can't be for people today, let alone illiterate people living in a place with very few records uh, in the 1580s, right? It's, it's, it becomes legible because it's tracked by the government. And what's really remarkable in taking it on its own terms is, is that it happened. They did it. Um, the other part what, by taking on its own terms is I, I think sometimes we judge the Elizabethan church by a standard of perfection, Perhaps we take the Puritans too much to heart, right? That they're not, that they, they're always talking about the Elizabethan church isn't living up to things. And a little bit of a straw man, but, but true, a sort of refrain in the historiography is that the Elizabethan church was kind of, kind of a failure, right? That it did, that didn't really work, that it was at least to some extent, um, uh, a bit corrupt, a bit empty. People were begrudgingly doing things. Um, and they offer as evidence the fact that there were chancels that fell down and some people weren't taking communion, et cetera. But I'm, I, I want to ask us, like, what standard are we holding this church to? 90% of chancels or more were in really good working order, meaning people were investing huge amounts of money into their church. I have traced, and I think fairly effectively, traced the fact that even in big urban parishes, 92, 95% of people were taking communion as they were supposed to do. So sure, you can look at the 5%, the 6%, the 7% and say, oh, you know, those people aren't going, the church is a failure. But on its own terms of sort of a broad-based national conformity, the Elizabethan church did what it was setting out to do. So that's what I mean by taking it on its own terms, not holding it to a ridiculous standard, but also recognizing that it was action rather than sort of deep introspection of belief that was the fundamental goal of the Elizabethan church going in, in the hopes that it would inculcate belief over time and in the hopes that it would protect people's consciences as they sort of figured out the complications of the Reformation. So there's a lot of things in that answer that I want to pick up and ask you about. <laughs> Um, that, right, this idea of surveillable, um, you know, one of the reasons we as historians can see any of this is because actions can be observed, can be quantified, etc. Um, and also this idea of kind of, well, 
actually, if we think about that, those percentages of um, conformity, right, whatever these reforms were, really were doing something, right? Yeah. Lots of things were happening. So as a starting point to try and do at least a highlights tour of the things that are happening that you talk about in the book, let's start with the subtitle, Building the English Church in the Elizabethan Parish, right? That last word of parish right. um, is something that, to be honest, I've always taken a bit for granted. Like, of course, <laughs> parishes are important, right? They're, they're the ones that have all the records, etc., etc. I hadn't really realized kind of how much the concept of the parish, the power of the parish, and um, the meaning of the parish really seems to have been changing a lot, been expanding and developing a lot during this period. So how and why did the parish suddenly become way more important and more powerful during this period? And how can we understand that, as you said, in the sort of social history context of what else is happening socially, economically in the country? Absolutely. So, um, and I will try to be more brief in some of my answers. I get very excited (laughs) about talking about these things. Um, The parish is, look, the parish has been a fundamental administrative and in many cases sort of social and cultural phenomenon in English life. Uh, There are people who try to trace it back and they they come up with all sorts of different answers, but certainly since uh, the 11th, 12th century, if not earlier, um, and, and how much you know, power that had in different places changes over time. But um, certainly by the late medieval period, it's very much in place, but it changes remarkably in the Elizabethan period because there is this desire to quantify and to surveil conformity. And with that in mind, uh, there begins to be a real crackdown on people attending church and people taking communion. Um, And that's only traceable if you can fix the population who's supposed to be doing it, right? So if I can go to any church, then nobody can trace whether, and there's no licensing system. They didn't, you know, it's, there's, it's not like they can scan a microchip on me and say, aha, you've been to the, to a parish this week. Um, What you really need to do and over and over again, what is enforced that you're required to do is to go to church in your parish to take communion in your parish. And this is particularly true after about 1570. In the first decade of the Elizabethan Reformation or so, it's it's kind of a vague thing. Some people push it, some people don't. But after 1570, across the country, in visitation after visitation, after in rule after rule, what you begin to see are people getting in trouble, not just for not going to church, but for not going to ch- but for going to church in another parish. My favorite example of this is the guy who says, no, no, I took communion, but the... Uh, Although I belong to Parish A, um, I'm actually geographically a lot closer to Parish B, the church in Parish B. And I'm very fat and I don't like to walk. And if I walk all the way, to, I don't want to walk to Parish A. He says this and this thing is, and they say, too bad, you have to walk. Um, and I think that that is... Like that's remarkable that it's, you know, he's conforming and the other church is very happy to say, look, he's coming to church, he's taking communion, but he's not going to his own parish. And whether it be ill health, whether it be, um, whether it be sort of personal preference for minister, it doesn't really matter. You have to go to your own parish because there you can be counted. And what that means um, when push comes to shove is that a community is a is there a compulsory community is built from around the 1570s on where people are more and more and more locked into uh, the parish in which they belong and in some cases this is quite easy right you're sort of um, agricultural parish of you know 2 miles by 3 miles with a village in the middle with a church in the middle it's pretty straightforward it gets really complicated when you move into a city um it, when the next parish can be the block over and these, but nevertheless, this, this they 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 
double down on this. They really emphasize this throughout. And this sense of a compulsory community creates this, this kind of uh, constructed public in front of which people are every, every week supposed to be. Um, and this runs very much at odds with what we're told in social history. And this is one of the things that's fascinating to me. Of course, this is a period of increased internal migration due to economic changes, the whether it be squeezes of enclosure or the rising stagflation or the general economic malaise of the 1590s. We know that people are moving around from parish to parish very frequently, um, whether it be age migration, work migration, or just family migration. But what's really interesting is when they get to a new place, they sort of register themselves. It's like when you get to a new place, registering yourself with your GP, right? It's one of the first things they do. And even in places like like in Cambridge, for example, they pay a boy a little sum of money every before every communion to go around and take a register of everybody and write down everybody's name who belongs to the communion register that week. In London, they give out tokens. Um, You pay a a, a small fee and you get a token for communion and you're registered as as being sort of deserving, being owed a communion in that particular parish. So these things run at odds with each other. And I actually think the fact, the anxieties around this migration, we see this in poor laws all the time in the early 17th century, right? Anxieties that you're going to be inundated with people for whom you have to take care of means that parish boundaries become increasingly important. You see this in works like uh, Steve Hindle's work, for example, you know, policing the parish boundaries, kicking people out who don't have a right to poor relief in your parish. But this actually happens even earlier. Anxieties in the, in the 1560s, 70s, 80s, anxieties that nonconformists may be amongst you cause the state to crack down on this long before the poor laws are in effect. So what you have are anxieties producing a desire to have a population that is knowable in some way, whether that be economic anxieties around the poor laws in the early 17th century, or whether it be religious anxieties in the late 16th century. So you don't just live in a place, you belong to it. You have certain rights by being part of that parish, and you also have obligations, And I think that's really, really important for understanding um, exactly how this Reformation played out. Implied in that sort of anxiety, in the desire, and in the really effective implementation of this practice is obviously some amount of enforcement, right? Because saying we want to do this and then, oh, wow, it actually really happens across parishes of all sorts of different sizes and geographies um, really takes some enforcement. So one of those aspects that you talk about, or kind of the way the state not just says this, but actually does make the information knowable, visitations. And I don't mean of ghosts. (laughs) What were visitations in this context? And sort of why were they so powerful? So visitations were uh, moments throughout the, the the year calendar where church authorities would send out surveys to the parish officials, uh, both lay officials like church wardens and sidemen and ecclesiastical officials, or I guess the ministry, um, and ask them to report, to answer a series of questions on what's going on in their parish. These are very, these are leading questions. They're very pointed questions. Um, there are remarkable similarities between the questions. The most common uh, or the most commonly thought of visitations are the Episcopal visitations. So every time a new bishop comes in, he's supposed to do a visitation. And then once every three years, he's supposed to do another visitation to keep a kind of eye on his on his diocese. Um, 
Even more common are the um, archdiaconal visitations, which in some cases happen every six months or even by the 1590s, every quarter. So there is a parish in London, which is uh, by the late 1590s, I think it sees six visitations in one year or something like that. I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong. It sees uh, quarterly visitations, plus an Episcopal one, plus an extraordinary visitation um, by the archbishop. And at these uh, events, which combine public preaching, there's sort of, it's sort of almost like a kind of quarter sessions, right? There's an opening prayer, an invocation, people are gathering. Um, The the locals are supposed to make a report as an answer to these pre-circulated questions. Um, And from this, a a record was begun of people who are violating various uh, religious, but also social, behavioral, uh, moral precepts within their parish. And those people would then be hauled to court. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest pieces of pushback I get from this is this idea that the visitations were toothless, um, that nobody paid attention to them, that they were kind of rote exercises. You do see in a lot of visitations, they'll write down omnia bene, omnia bene, you know, all is good, all well, um, nothing to report here. Uh, and I think that the historians, both for reasonable reasons, but also for slightly cynical ones, right, see that this is a vast conspiracy of silence. And it is true that the fact that these visitations are relying so much on the locals to report up the chain, it's not an inquisitorial model, right? It's a kind of a bottom-up model. You're being asked questions and you're being asked to report. Um, Part of that does mean that there's an enormous amount of power in the hands of the church wardens to kind of negotiate around the edges of the Reformation. But I don't think it's possible uh, for any parish year after year after year to avoid the power of the visitation. And part of that is because one of the questions and the penalties is about is, you know, has anybody ever covered up anything in your parish before? So you would really need in order to sustain a sort of vast conspiracy of silence, right? Decades of people lying to church authorities again and again and again, not using this for local feuds, not not feeling a sense of personal responsibility or kind of professional responsibility, not feeling a, a spiritual need, and both the ministry and the church wardens colluding in the silence because they asked both, right? They asked the church wardens to report on the ministry, which is a very interesting power dynamic. And they asked the ministry to report on the, on the church wardens and the laity. So it's not, it's not a perfect system. A lot slipped under the radar. But a lot got caught. And particularly by the end, you start to see very fine-grained critiques that suggest that it's working pretty well. So for example, you're supposed to take communion three times a year. The church authorities, as long as you're taking it at Easter, they're by and large okay with it. That's this annual Paschal communion is, is mostly what they care about. But you go to a city like Norwich and by the 15, late 1590s, they're reporting, oh, well, this person took two communions a year, but not the third. When you get to that kind of granular level, you got to think that year after year, if things like that are being reported, the, the, at least one read, and certainly my read of it is, that most people are conforming that these things are working and that there is some level. I think it's also really important to remember that there was no professional system of surveillance in England at this time. Just none, right? There's no professional surveillance in terms of criminal law. Right, the the what, from the jury <laughs> to the justices of the peace to the in some the, the coroner, these are all what we would today consider amateur positions. 
right? There's not a professional police force out there investigating crime as we think of it today. These are volunteers. And there was a sense of communal responsibility for standards that absolutely exists all over the place. Um, and, but we don't say nobody was prosecuted for crime in the Elizabethan period, even though I'm sure that there were some times that somebody stole something and, you know, because they were hungry and they didn't get reported to the authorities and they took care of themselves. So again, mm. one of the questions is what standard we're holding it to. So, but mm -hmm. the visitations are this fascinating thing because they also kept really good records, right? So we have mm. the records of the questions so we can see what people are being asked. And that does change over time. So you get to see an increased uh, concern about various things sort of springing up on the page. And by like 1600, they're incredibly detailed. Hundreds of questions in some cases, right? Just insane, not, not hundreds, but a hundred questions in you know, an insane level of detail. Um, but you also get the answers. And some cases you get the church court. So you can kind of, in some cases, trace a crime over time from report in the visitation, through the court cases, through the confession in the parish and the, um, and the sort of purging of oneself in the parish to getting it sort of um, signed out of court at the very end. These are living records. And that's really exciting to work with as a historian. Yeah, very exciting. Um, so thank you for taking us through that. I'd love to um, ask kind of a little bit more about one of the elements that you've talked about, right? Because I did promise at the beginning that this is not a top-down <laughs> story. And obviously the idea of quarterly visitations does seem a bit, you know, much from the top. Um, but you talked about church wardens and you sort of were like, oh yeah, and there were church wardens. And again, a term I had been familiar with honestly hadn't thought that much about. Turns out way more interesting than I realized. <laughs> so can you tell us about the role of the church warden and how that changed during this period? And especially sort of if we're thinking of the bottom up influence on this whole system, tell us about church wardens. Absolutely. So the church warden had been around from the medieval period, originally uh, in charge mostly of making sure that the church goods were in working order. Um, and eventually, particularly in urban parishes by the late 15th century, owning a lot of property and managing property. What changes in the Reformation is when that the state church doesn't trust its own agents. It doesn't trust the ministry to enact the Reformation. How, how could it? By and large, in its early years, the people who are, uh, the, you know, the priests are, 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 antith are antipathetic, shall we say, gently, antipathetic to the Reformation. So what they do is they begin to turn to these local officers, this local office, to um, enforce the state Reformation. Um, and so it goes from collecting, you know, helping to collect dues for the church and making sure that the chalices are, are perfectly nice and making sure the churchyard isn't falling over. That stuff continues. Um, chalices turn to communion cups, but by and large, it continues. But what begins to happen is the church wardens are in charge of regulating the spiritual and moral environment of their parish. Um, they are responsible for everything from... Um, Look, uh, looking after the ministry, sort of checking in on the ministry, reporting whether the ministers in the parish are themselves um, you know, spiritually sound and doing a good job, whether they be, you know, not only rooting out recusants, but also rooting out, you know, the, the parish minister who's getting drunk and not coming to services and things like that. But it begins to be also about questions of, of larger morality, um, whether people are attending alehouses or gambling. It's, a, it's not quite a reformation of manners. It's about very, very clearly about making sure that the parish is in good moral working order. What this means, it happens at the same time as the church warden 
starts to take on all these secular duties. Church wardens are in charge of the highways. In London, church wardens are in charge of putting together defenses just in case somebody comes up the Thames. Um, They're in charge of raising money for various funds. They're in charge of all sorts of celebrations of the monarch. Um, What this means is the church warden becomes an office of extraordinary power. Um, And this really, really happens. This is a kind of continuation of the Edwardian project. This is a dream of the Edwardian reformers, that you would have these sort of uh, leading members of a parish who could help guide and shepherd a kind of almost a a sort of... almost almost on a sort of Genevan model um, in some of their imaginations. It never gets to that, right? It never gets to that model. What you begin to see, again, in the, the 1570s, the 1571 canons, is you begin to see rules put down for the church warden of exactly what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to make sure that people aren't whispering in church, down to really, really granular details, kind of funny granular details, it's a little bit like um, in Henry VIII, there, the, the, uh, Wolsey tries to reform his court and says things like, you know, you please stop. No one is allowed to throw chicken bones into the fire and stop urinating in the corridors. And you realize that somebody must be throwing like a lot of chicken bones in the fire and urinating in a lot of corridors to make it a rule. <laughs> and so when you start to read these rules, you start to realize just what kinds of disruptions they might have been dealing with. What's really fascinating about the church wardens is, A, they're not always men. Particularly in the West Country, they're women until pretty late in the Elizabethan period. Um, and the ways in which they gain this power change markedly from parish to parish. So in some places, it's a really, it's it's proto-democracy. You know, proto it isn't really proto-democracy, but it's a lot more control. I mean, these people are political actors, right? They have enormous amounts of actual political power. If we think about power uh, as political as when, when power is contested, if we take Andy Wood's definition of power, when power is contested or asserted, um, they have an enormous amount of political power. They have the ear of the state all over the place. And in some cases, you have people who never would have been able to vote in an open election because they didn't have the property requirements to so do way before Putney, right? Way before you finally get universal adult male suffrage in the 20th century, you have people voting for their local church wardens. And one of my favorite things I saw ever as a historian was um, in just in the, it was in the London Metropolitan Archives. And in the back of one of the books, were a series of tally marks for very, they had like five different candidates and each candidate had a different number of tally marks. And it reminded me of my favorite part of British elections. Yeah, I'm an American, but I've lived a lot of time in Britain and I love the part where the teenagers race with the ballot papers to be the first local constituency to announce who the winner is, right? That's, that's exactly what it reminded me of, but in an Elizabethan way. So we have some like actual open contested elections going on in some parishes. And in other parishes, um, it's a selection. Somebody, The senior church warden chooses who the junior will be, and then he or she chooses the next one, and they sort of rotate. And in other places, it's just geographic, right? If you own a household, it's a sort of by rota system, and it goes in a circle. So very different um, ways that this enormous amount of political power is chosen. Um, I think it has some very interesting implications for larger questions about how politics works in in England. Um, but it's also just really fun to see these church wardens um, leave their mark on history. Uh, these are people who whose names we would never otherwise have heard. Um, mm. Genuinely, um, a lot of them are illiterate or uh, barely literate. Um, they are uh, everyday people 
who are fundamentally shaping the world in which they live. And you can see it happening in real time on the page. And that is an extraordinary thing to see for somebody who's interested in, po- in popular politics. Mm, absolutely. Um, you've given us such a fabulous idea from that answer of the kind of top down and bottom up nature um, of what's going on here, the multiple different processes. Um, And at the risk of, I I will have to warn listeners, um, this is a highlights tour. We're not going to (laughs) be able to go into every single aspect of this, but hopefully the church warden one demonstrates that to a degree. Um, And so I'd love to turn to one of the other themes really that you look at, which is how is all this being paid for? (laughs) Right. Um, right? This is not cheap. This is a pretty involved process. So, what sort of decisions were being made about kind of, well, we're going to prioritize this and not that because they can't do everything. Um, What sorts of compromises were made? What concessions did that require? What were the consequences of these financial prioritizations to try and pay for this massive change? Um, I'm a big believer in following the money. Um, I am in some ways an old fashioned spoon counter. I actually had a student who gave me, I told this to her and two years later when she graduated, she gave me a little spoon in a frame, which I thought, which I keep (laughs) next to my desk to remind myself to count the spoons. Uh, I, the the financial books are often also our best records in the localities. So church wardens accounts are a key part of the, of the work that I do for this book. Um, they're not an unflawed document, but I've looked at, I would guess, in terms of church wardens' accounts that are um, detailed and f- fully extant and not too damaged, that run the entire gamut of the Elizabethan period, I'm spitballing here, I guess there are, I don't know, uh, a few dozen, uh, probably between 80 and 100 that, that meets at least most of those things. And I've looked at... Uh, over three quarters of those. Um, And so I was able to really trace the ways in which the finances of the church played out. Um, The priorities of the Elizabethan church, first and foremost, were basic provisioning of church ornament and making sure the church didn't fall down around people. Um, So the, I mean, it's incredibly expensive to keep um, the church up. um, And that is a longstanding problem. Uh, Windows are broken, bad storms come through, roofs fall off churchyards fall over. It's very rainy. Things get destroyed. Um, So that's one big priority. Another is transforming the church ornament, um, making sure that the provision of Protestant church material is available, by which I mean getting rid of all the Catholic ornaments and instead replacing chalices with communion cups, um, making sure that the altars are taken down and communion tables are are being put up. Um, But there are also uh, more... uh, also things like the, uh, the books, right? Buying books for the parish, making sure the bo- there's a book of common prayer, that there are um, various, uh, various bishops require various texts. So Erasmus's paraphrases are a very common requirement. Um, uh, and in some, in some parishes you get, or in some dioceses rather, you get people saying even more books that are required for that parish. Um, and then a lot of it is about making sure um, in things that creep in, in really interesting ways are about making sure the community is taken care of. Um, These parishes, other than a manor house, the parish church was the biggest economic engine in almost every parish that's around. 
Um, so the amount of money, the sheer amount of money that's coming in and going out for repaving, retiling, washing the floors, strewing the reeds, washing the linens, buying the books, sending someone to buy the book, sending a boy to send a message to send to somebody to buy a book, the amount of money that's spent on this visit- these visitations, I mean, the church wardens are having a little bit of fun at these visitations. In several parishes, they start curbing the amount of money they're allowed to spend at the pub when they go to the, when they either tot up the accounts or when they go on they sort of serve a jolly, right? They all go to the, for the visitation, they go to the local, the closest big city and they get put up and they have some dinners out on the parish's dime. So the funding of the church is really important. The, the parish church is really important in that. The other thing, of course, is the funding of the ministry. Um, and this is a perennial complaint amongst the godly that the ministry is, doesn't have enough money. Um, and if it doesn't have enough money, people won't go in. It's not, you know, dissimilar to how we talk right now about, um, doctors, right? In the, in, in the, in the NHS, right? If we don't have it, if, if people, if we're not being, if they're not being paid enough, then they aren't going to go into the NHS. They're going to, I don't know. Um, I was recently listening to a story about worries that they were headed to Australia, right? They're all going to go to Australia. Um, and uh, I'm not being flippant about that. It is, I understand the concern. Absolutely. Um, but this is a real concern. The idea that people aren't going to go into the ministry, that they'll be drawn into something like trade or uh, something like um, law instead of the ministry is a real worry amongst the, the godly. So the other thing they have to figure out is how to fund the ministry. And this is where um, the question of tithes comes in, which I can talk more about if you want. So those are the two big things, the upkeeping of the parish church, the upkeeping of the surveillance of, of the church, and, um, and, and, and provisioning the ministry. In fact, I would love for you to tell us about tithes. Um, in fact, that was going to be my next question uh, because tithes are fascinating. And you even go so far as to say that looking at tithe disputes pretty much helps us understand the full effects of the Elizabethan Reformation in a nutshell in a lot of ways. So please do tell us about tithes. Well, I will say you are maybe the first person in my life who has ever said that tithes are fascinating. <laughs> um, that is not a common response I get when I say that I am looking at tithes. I will tell you that tithe research is straight up boring a lot of the time. The number of things where I look through like prices of peas and apples and grain in various places and disputes over that, it's not... Yeah, no, this is why I want you to tell me <laughs> about tithes. I don't want to go find it out myself. <laughs> That's uh, very fair. Um, but they are secretly really, really interesting. So tithes obviously are the taxes uh, paid to support the church ministry. Um, it's really uh, a complicated system uh, in, in, in actuality, but in theory, it's pretty easy. Uh, the rector of the parish receives the great tithes, which is 10% of mostly grain, um, the big money-making crops. Um, and a vicar would receive 10% of the small tithes, which is uh, the little sort of everyday crops, the apples, the pigs, the whatever. Um, and this would fund the ministry. In reality, what happens over the course of the 16th century are a series of compromises, of unintended consequences, of revivals, of a pre-Reformation memory, all because of tithes. Back in the medieval period, um, one of the big uh, changes that happened to parishes is that the uh, right to control uh, the, the tithes, the payment of the tithes, went to monasteries. Um, these are called appropriations. And these, these, uh, 
the it makes sense, right? The monastery would collect the big tithes and they'd send somebody out. Uh, they'd become the sort of the institutional rector of the parish and they'd send somebody out to minister to the parish's needs. And that made a lot of sense. In some cases, in some counties, two thirds of the land, two thirds of the parishes were officially sort of owned by the monasteries. And of course, the monasteries are dissolved. And what happens to all that right to collect all of those tithes? Well, um, both Henry and, and Edward make various um, concessions to make tithe la- uh, to make former monastic land more attractive um, for sale, uh, to keep the revenue for themselves in some cases, to make it more attractive for sale, and to make it more attractive as a gift for people who are supporting them. And one of those is that any o- land that is owned by was owned by a monastery doesn't have to pay tithes. Um, these are called impropriations. Um, and it makes sense, right? The monastery wouldn't have to pay tithes to itself back in the day. And they kept that kind of like a tax abatement. They kept it. Um, and what this means is in the 1590s, you have people debating all the time whether land used to be owned by monasteries, whether this land, um, and you have people testifying in court over and over and over again about what life was like before the Reformation. They talk over and over again about, I was a young girl who used to work on the monastic estate and I knew uh, the abbot and uh, the, you know, this is what, the, this is what they used to do. And this is what my life used to be like. And, you know, this is the monks would sometimes visit us here. It's this constant revival of the memory of the pre-Reformation at a time that we're told that the memory of the pre-Reformation is kind of anathema, right? They're constantly reviving it for this reason. So that's one really interesting consequence of it. The second is the right to uh, appoint the minister. Um, the advowson often comes along with, with the right to have the tithes for parish, not always, but sometimes. Um, so you have the laity uh, increasingly uh, dominating questions of the tithe. So much of tithe business isn't a minister suing somebody for not giving him the tithes that he should have, but it's a layman suing another layman about taxes collected by a layman. You have this laicization of the tithe. And what this means is there is extraordinary economic and political buy-in on the part of the laity, even tacitly into the system. So much so, you know, when Mary comes along and tries to revive or sort of reverse some of Edwardian policies, one of the things she can't reverse is this, because all the people who are going to vote on it, you know, more than half of them own previous, previous monastic land. She's not going to reverse this. So what you have is people caring about the uh, provision of, of ministry, or at least supposed to be caring about it, um, supposed to be repairing the chancels. If you have the tithes, you're supposed to repair the chancels, really deep down, and in some cases, actively promoting their own religious impulses. Um, So Henry Huntington does this all the time. But you actually have, in some cases, women, uh, particularly widows, who own various rights to appoint um, people in various parishes and own tithe rights. They're not always the same thing, but they often are, um, who are exercising enormous amounts of patronage. You know, they are hiring, these are women who are hiring and firing ministers. There are letters from a few of them um, saying, you know, I don't like the way that you were preaching. And so I'm going to have to let you go, which is fascinating, right? Because we're told that the women didn't really necessarily have a place, an active place in this church. Not all of them did, but some of them did. And you're seeing it play out here. 
The last thing that you are really seeing play out here is, again, this sort of question of unintended consequences that runs through the book. Um, One of the things that Edward does is he, uh, to sort of put a put paid to all sorts of disputes, is he says that uh, land, tithes should be decided the way that they were 40 years ago, right? In precedent, 40 years ago, in custom and precedent, 40 years ago. And he fixes this um, in uh, 1509. It's, well, in 1549, fixes it for 1509. So how tithes were distributed in 1509 um, continues to be how tithes are distributed under Elizabeth. And this makes some degree of sense, but a lot of times agreements were made in the early 16th century that made sense for the economic stakes of the early 16th century. So in the early early 16th century, for example, um, grain prices were pretty reasonable, pretty low, um, and coin was wanted. So people would say, hey, instead of gathering up all this grain, giving me the grain or giving me a portion of the, um, the money that you sell the grain for, how about you do this? Just give me X amount of money in lieu of the tithe every year, you know, give me uh, five shillings in lieu of the, in lieu of your tithe obligations this year. And they made these agreements. But what was a really good agreement in 1509 was a truly terrible agreement in 1596. Because in 1596, the price of grain was through the roof and inflation was such that five shillings was not the same as it was, oh, I don't know, 90 years earlier. So you have these ministers who are going to church, sorry, going to courts, the church courts, legitimately pleading poverty because they're trapped into an agreement that it's as if, you know, your pay scale was agreed in, I don't know, 1920. And it felt like a really good deal in 1920 to be making $400 a year. And it really doesn't feel like a good deal in 2023. Um, And so what you have, because the the, uh, unwillingness to rock certain socio-political boats in the early part of the Reformation has these long-standing echoes and consequences. So you get to see the way, just like um, doctrinal compromises or what seem like doctrinal compromises have long-standing consequences well into the 17th century. So you see these things, the rise of the laity um, and the laicization, not the secularization, but the laicization of the church. You see the ways in which people are deeply embedded and, and the economics of the parish are deeply embedded into people's everyday economic lives. And you see the ways in which these the big consequences of the great sort of divergence between the haves and the have-nots at the later part of the 16th century absolutely p- plays into this. Um, this is one of the most sort of low-key important things. And it all comes from reading a lot of very boring court cases about peas and pigs and apples and um, people remembering a life that was supposed to be erased. See, I told you, times are interesting, <laughs> as long as I'm not the one reading the logs about the peas and the pigs. <laughs> So there we go. Thank you for telling us all about that. And it really does kind of make a lot of sense and is very understandable for us today, you know, even with that um, analogy for it. It's like, hmm, okay, hang on a second. That would tell us quite a lot about society. Um, I do want to kind of not leave out the some of the buildings we've actually talked about, the literal buildings and things mm. happening within them, um, because the big picture stuff and the finances and the surveillance is a huge part of it. But there's also some really interesting things literally happening physically within these often very small buildings. Um, so I'm going to pick out two, really, that I'm quite interested in having you tell us a bit about. Uh, the first one, pews. 
the things you sit on in the church when all these things are going on. Why were pews kind of a particular thing during this Reformation period? In fact, you say that pew construction was, quote, a distinctly Elizabethan movement. Why? Right. So we uh, we tend to think, and I, I, just, I don't know, I don't want to spoil your second question. I don't know what it's going to be. But we tend to think, right, about the sort of most obvious changes going on in the physical church, the, the destruction of the rude screens or the altars and the um, building of a, a pulpit or something like that. But for me, my money on the most exciting thing that's happening, well, altars are probably pretty exciting. I mean, to me, but um, my thing on the most exciting is pews. Um, most people going to church in, say, the late 15th century, um, early 16th century, would be milling about, would be standing um, in the in uh, in the nave of the church, uh, not seated, um, observing the the miraculous moment of transubstantiation in the mass, um, and they would not be fixed in any particular way. Um, they weren't required to be there, and they wouldn't have a fixed seat within the church. This begins to change uh, slowly over the course of the early 16th century, and then it accelerates incredibly quickly in the, the later 16th century. And the Elizabethan period, it's the pews are just front and center. Pew construction is happening everywhere. There are some churches that remain unpewed by the end of the Elizabethan period, but it is, I, you know, I actually have never done like a numerical study, but I would say a, my, a significant minority that are. What pews are, it, it, it points to three very different intertwined, interrelated changes that are going on in the Elizabethan church. So first and foremost, um, the building of, of pews allows you to raise money in new ways. Um, there are ways to raise money that continue on pretty late, like church ales. The Mary England is not dead. Um, these things continue in a lot of places. Um, but there are traditional ways to raise money, for example, lights in front of saints uh, that aren't permissible anymore. So how is the church supposed to raise money to provision the communion and the visitations and the buying of books and the cleaning of the church and the endless, endless, endless window glazing? Um, one of the ways they do that is by charging you a rent to sit in a particular pew. Pews began to be built as a kind of fundraising tool, just like you might, I don't know, put a plaque with your name on it on the back of your favorite theater. Um, but what really is very interesting, these become property. They can, they are, they are litigated over constantly. Um, you can decorate your own pew. One of my favorite pews has um, green velvet cushions and copper nails. Um, you even begin to have these box pews that we begin to see in the Elizabethan period, which, which are very firmly sort of personal, right? They belong to a person. That is that person's space within the church. And they owe a certain rate, a pew rate to the church as a result from sitting there. So it becomes a great way to raise funds. So that's step one. And that tells us something about the ways that fundraising works. Um, but because of that, um, because of these pews, it's also much easier to understand who's there and who isn't there, right? If everyone's just sort of, you have, even in a smallish parish, let's say you have 150 people in your parish, um, that's a pretty small parish, not tiny, but pretty small, milling about, you know, people walking in and out, talking to each other, uh, running outside for some reason, it'd be very hard to see who wasn't coming to church, who wasn't taking communion, who wasn't taking it seriously. It'd be very hard to report on. Um, suddenly, with everybody sitting down in one space, the gaps are really obvious. I still remember the first time I walked into, there's a, I, when I was living in um, 
when I was teaching in Oxford, I lived in a little village called Islip, uh, just outside of Oxford. And I walked to an even smaller hamlet called Noak that was nearby. Um, and I walked in and it was the church could have only sat like 50 people. And it was just watching the Reformation come to life under my eyes, right? It was just fascinating. I mean, everybody would have, it was been so visible and so surveillable. Um, the big urban parishes, less so, so they had ways around this. Um, but in many parishes, you'd have a place. And so much so that by 1700, right, um, there's the famous sort of history of middle where they where the minister goes through each pew and, and gives the little life story of everybody who's sitting in every particular seat. So everyone has a place within the church and that place is known. So when we talk about belonging, right? So it's both a belonging of affinity, right? I own this space, I deserve it, but it's also a belonging as in a, a recordable space. That also is very, very, very Elizabethan. And what makes it sort of thirdly exciting is that this begins to have, of course, all sorts of social ramifications. So people have... Um, that you constant pew disputes and wonderful people have written about pew disputes. There are wonderful articles about it. Um, you will have two people getting it. There's one that I found when I was a graduate student that others have written about, but I, I found it on my own um, in the archives in Cambridge and two people get into a fight in the middle of uh, the Cambridge church because a woman is sitting in somebody else's seat. She's sitting in a seat that a, that a woman thinks is hers. And she goes up to her and says, you're sitting, you know, you don't, this is my seat. And she says, you're a whore. You shouldn't get to sit in this seat. It's too close to the front of the church. And they get into a fist fight in the middle of the church, right? And this turns into like all sorts of allegations that go on. Um, social standing, where you sit in the church, one's physical proximity is really important. It signals so much within this space because it's a constructed community, right? You can see everyone laid out. In some parishes, you'd have splits between men and women, but often you'd have uh, family pews, um, these box pews that belong to different... It's, it's a social gradation spelled out concretely in front of you. So simultaneously, you have renting... <laughs> And, and ownership, you have um, surveillance and, and, and uh, legibility, and you have social status and social anxiety. And what you have then is people competing to sit in a church where they'll hear a sermon Right. This isn't just this isn't just I mean, social dynamics are incredibly important. Again, I'm a social historian. That's what that's what makes me excited. But what they are doing is they are owning a space and competing for a space where they will experience a very particular church service with a very particular doctrinal bent, with lessons being told to them, with homilies being preached to them. And so this pewing of the church, I think, is like the most Elizabethan thing of all. It, it ties together so many of these strands that I'm talking about. Um, these aren't beautiful, not, not always beautiful pews. A lot of them are sort of very workaday, but what they are are testaments to the concretizing, to the real building of the Elizabethan church in the parish and all the many reasons, personal, financial, spiritual, right? You want to, you want to be able to hear the, the church service, um, uh, political, um, you want uh, loyalty to the crowd. All these things become tied together into being in a particular space at a particular time in a particular seat. Um, and that's a transformation of the way that people understood their geographies. 
I love asking questions that make it sound like I'm going off on a niche tangent and then <laughs> the author answers and it's like, and here's how all the pieces go together. Um, so that's wonderful. I think there's going to be a lot of people going into churches looking at pews quite differently now. Um, but I want to, my second question in the church itself is something you've just touched on, right? Once they're sat in those pews, they then listen to a sermon mm-hmm. and they participate in the very specific Elizabethan ceremony of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. How does looking at this particular ceremony also do something similar, right? Help us understand how and why all these things are happening, and especially that question at the beginning, right? How did the Elizabethan Reformation mean that when she took the throne, kind of the extent to which England would be strongly Protestant was still sort of up for grabs? And by the time she dies, England is Protestant, full stop. How does the ceremony of the sacrament help us understand that transformation? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but distracted by the idea of Protestant, full stop. I think that's very interesting. I want to play with that idea later, maybe. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's Protestant semicolon. I'm going to give it a Protestant <laughs> semicolon rather than a Protestant, full stop. Um, uh, because I, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I agree, but I, I think it's it's something that I think a lot of people will will take a hesitation with. So I, I wouldn't mind talking about that more. Um, so probably the longest chapter in this book is the final chapter, which is my chapter on the sacrament. When I first wrote it, I looked down and it was sixty thousand words, um, and then I had to start cutting because sixty thousand words is. Um, not a chapter it's not a chapter uh, it's, mm. it's two-thirds of the length of a of some books this this book is about 120 with notes but uh, it was too long um the sacrament is i think uh by which i mean there are there are of course two sacraments in the church there's baptism and, and communion but when they say the sacrament they mean they mean communion um which they sometimes call the lord's supper um there's a lot of sort of debate about what or sometimes they call it the eucharist but we're going to call it the communion here um the sacrament is at the heart of the Elizabethan Reformation. Um, required by the church, uh, you had to go every three times a year. Um, really, again, as I said earlier, they really cared about you going once a year, at least particularly early on. They really cared about that Paschal. Um, the church uh, sees it as a really tangible sign of orthodoxy. There are plenty of uh, recusants, for example, who are willing to go to church but not willing to take the sacrament. Um, we can talk about that in a second. Um, and it is a long, slow, deeply important moment of change. Um, when the when and I traced a lot of this by looking at those church wardens' accounts and expenditure, um, both expenditure on the sacrament itself, how much money was being spent on wine, for example, um, and. Uh, adjusting that for inflation, like, and my life was like really exciting. Looking at like inflation indices for wine, and then doing doing statistical uh, aggregate uh, deinflation to try to make sure that we were on the same level, and then telling us about it, which is the fun part. <laughs> so yeah, well, that is the fun part. Yeah. So um, so part of it was about looking at how much money was being spent on wine, and how much, and then the another part was looking at when these services were taking place, um, and how often they were taking place. And what you see in the 1580s is a fundamental shift. 
Um, by the 1580s, almost every parish is spending somewhere between three and four times as much money on the sacrament as they were at the beginning of the Elizabethan church. Uh, sorry, the beginning of the Elizabethan reign. And increasingly, what you see is people holding multiple sermons, uh, sorry, multiple services a year, multiple communion services a year, sometimes in some parishes as many as once a month. Um, or even more often, as well as private communion services um, for at, at weddings, for example, or for particular moments in the, the church calendar that was important to that particular church. It is a remarkable participation in something that is at the absolute heart of the spiritual and doctrinal center of the ceremonial life of the church. Um, we tend to think of uh, the sacrament as something that's associated with very high church activities or even, you know, even Catholic activities. Um, and that's certainly not true in this period. Um, the, one of the groups that takes the sacrament by far the most seriously are the godly, right? These, these proto-Puritans take it enormously seriously. It is a time for the refreshing of oneself with God. It is an incredibly important moment. So it becomes a moment, it becomes a, a symbol of conformity, a symbol of Protestantism, and it has real deep spiritual meaning. It's also something that can be taken away from a person if they don't behave in a particular way. So you can be suspended from the sacrament. Um, there are a lot of reasons why the church, whether it be the ministry or whether it be uh, the, the bishop or, or the church courts, might suspend somebody from a sacrament. Um, it is it not the most formal version of this is excommunication, which you see um, in, on occasion, but less informally is, is, is temporary suspension. So, for example, you have to be in charity with your neighbor in order to take the sacrament. That's really important. So sometimes people, uh, ministers would use this to try to stop disputes that were going on in their parish to get people to reconcile around Easter, to stop disputes from spiraling out or to punish people who were being contentious, who were I don't know, hauling people into court all the time or having too many lawsuits or being brawlers, they'd suspend them temporarily. They just wouldn't allow them to have communion. And you have people who are furious about this, right? So you have a lot of people who say, you know, nobody really wanted to take communion. Excommunication was kind of a toothless penalty by these toothless church courts, and it didn't really matter. But on the other hand, you have people who are literally storming to the front of the church, screaming at the minister, you know, how dare you not give me communion? How dare you, you know, encourage my excommunication? Because it's not just, um, it, it, A, it has real spiritual meaning for people, right? They feel disconnected from God. Um, one of the most horrific stories I came across was a, a young woman who's giving birth to um what they would have called a, a bastard child. Um, and they want to know who the father is because then he could be financially responsible and she won't tell them and she won't tell them and she won't tell them. And she's terrified while giving birth that she's going to die, which is probably a reasonable terror. And they say, we will not give you communion unless you tell us who the father is. And so she does. Um, and they give her communion, right? So there's, there's real, she's, she's terrified she's going to die and she's going to, it's not quite be unshriven, right? That's, that's a, that's, that's not the right idea, but it's that she will not have that sort of spiritual nourishment, um, at this moment of crisis. So there's real spiritual ramifications. There are also social ramifications and practical ones. Um, practically, you can't be a godparent if you um, are a uh, excommunicate. You can't. Excommunication is uh, catching. You're not supposed to. Ha you're not supposed to hang out with other excommunicates. You can yourself be excommunicated for that. Um, so it's 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 sort of shunning. You're supposed to shun the person. Um, and there's you know if you take what Craig Muldrew uh, and Alex Shepard and others have said about credit seriously which I do, which is that people's lives and economic 
well-being was predicated upon their reputation. Being excommunicated can wreck your credit, right? It's like it's like it's a bankruptcy. Um, and so there are real reasons that people don't want to do this. This, but whether it be spiritual, uh, practical, or social. Um, so it's embarrassing to be sent back from the communion, right? You march up in front of this entire congregation to take this and the minister's like, you're not spiritually fit, go back. It's, it's incredibly shaming as well to be turned away from communion. So people begin both for, for whether for practical reasons, because they don't want to get in trouble, for personal spiritual reasons, to take the sacrament. And what you see is by the 1580s, just across the board, remarkable, remarkable levels of conformity, like shocking levels, like levels that are so shocking that people don't believe it when I tell them. Um, I, I found uh, several places where, you know, I had to multiply to be safe. I multiplied by, you know, even if this was 10 times off, 30 times off, it would still mean that 96% of people were communicating in this place. Um, it's, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkable level of conformity. And the people who object um, in in uh, Alex Walsham, who's one wonderful historian, in her words, right, the ones who cannot stomach Calvin's supper, uh, those small group start to be more like outsiders. Um, recusants begin to be known as those who remove themselves against Easter. Um, which is to say they try to, you know, they try to hide when Easter comes. And my favorite way that they try to hide, right, is they get into very public fights in the town square, like fisticuffs, right? You know, I can sort of imagine like a 19, uh, 19th century boxer with your fists up in the town square being like, fie, and they get into these fake fights and they're like, oh, I can't take communion, not because I'm a recusant, but because I'm out of charity with my neighbor. So I can't legitimately do it. But what begins to happen, right, is they, one person, one writer calls them those who quarrel against the sacrament. This idea of them as contentious and as others and as not really belonging starts to get its roots in. So that by the end of the, of, by the sort of the turn of the century, by around 1600, what you have are in the most gentle guesses, probably something like between 90 and 95% of conformity with the sacrament. Um, and you can look at the figures in my book if you have questions about this. Um, I try to spell it out as cleanly as I can. You have the regular provision of this. And this is something that has very specific doctrinal um, and spiritual, personal, theological, ecclesiological um, valences. And it's very much reformed. And it is something that everybody in the country, almost everybody, not everybody, almost everybody in the country is doing. Um, and that's, I think, a really remarkable thing. And so when I say semicolon, you know, why they're doing it, you know, it, who knows? Out of habit, out of belief, out of fear, out of mechanistic desire, whatever. To some degree, I don't care. Again, if we take them on their own terms, what I care is that they're doing it. And what we see by the end of the period is this sort of generational, year in, year out rhythm of people participating in the Elizabethan church, in the church of England, not just the church in England, but the church of England and the real building of the church of England, not from the top down and not from the bottom up by, by a mix of these two things in a really sincere way. Um, so you see this absolute transformation and, and at its heart, I think lies this, this question of the sacrament, um, which people from quite 
conservative to quite radical Protestants, um, the, the edges on either side, not so much, but quite conservative, quite radical, all agree is absolutely the center of sort of how they think about their faith. Well, that sums up a ton of things. In fact, that might be a better summary than we'll be able to get. Um, and we went right into the heart of it as well. So I think I'm going to have us end there Perfect. with that wonderful summary of the book, which leads only to my final question. Um, the book, as you mentioned, is available. People can go read these details yes. themselves. They can go look into all of those calculations if they want. Um, and that also means it's off your plate. Yeah. So given that, um, is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not yeah. it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Absolutely. Although I should say just for your listeners, I promise <laughs> it's not all graphs and charts and like, it's really not. <laughs> it's a lot of stories. There's some yes. amazing pictures. Some, I found some amazing pictures that I got crazy permissions to be allowed to be put in this book. I try to make it really legible to people mm. who have um, from all sorts of backgrounds. That's really important to me. So this is in many cases me trying to recount the stories of people whose stories have been lost to us um, and, and to revive those stories and to tell a larger story about the Church of England and about England itself, but also about what it meant to live in this mm. space. And I think that's really important. So I, I ground mm -hmm. this very much in the stories of the people. So there are like, again, spoon counter, I love a chart, but I reined myself in and I put mm. that stuff in the footnotes so that you can, you can really tell, get the narrative rather than, um, uh, I, I saved my charts for my articles. Speaking of which, I, I will. Well, I will. I will. In fact, um, second that for the <laughs> listeners that um, if you liked the answer about tithes, right? Lucy read all the boring logs so that we don't have to when we get the cool story. That is a pretty good encapsulation of how we get all this wonderful information in the book. But please tell us what Thank you're you. working on. Next. Of course, of course. So um, I'm working on two projects. Uh, both of which have had my interest for a while. Um, I'm at different stages with them. The first project is a stor the story of the Dutch strangers in Norwich uh, in the uh, late 16th century. Uh, there's an enormous amount of immigration into uh, England following disruption in the Low Countries. Norwich, which is the second largest city in the country, um, sort of the what Birmingham is now to um, England, at least, um, sees its population grow by 50% in four years, and they're all foreign immigrants into this space that is uh, undergoing enormous economic, social, political, and religious change. Um, so I think it has some really interesting resonances to today's world, um, whether these people, you know, how much are they like us, how much are they not like us, how, what kinds of policies should we extend things like welfare and citizenship and rights to these people amongst us, what are our values as English people. Um, I think it has a lot of things to say there. So I'm working on that project. I'm actually learning Dutch. Um, but uh, most of the Dutch records were actually destroyed in the First World War. So fortunately, the Victorians transcribed a lot of them for us because a lot of them have been absolutely destroyed. Um, on the on the Dutch side, the, uh, the Norfolk Record Office is one of my favorites in the country, and it has some remarkable records. The second project is another story of transformation. It's the story of the transformation of Stepney, um, which in this period takes up 
Oh, gosh. Um, almost all of what we would call the East End of London, with a tiny exception, almost all um, from uh, right from the borders uh, of the of the city walls all the way past um, what is now Canary Wharf, for example, and, and north to south. And this is, I think, the heartbeat of the new empire. Um, it is the space. It is it transforms from a really sleepy agricultural parish uh, to a place which is. Um, where the all the sailors in the in the East India Company and the beginnings of the Royal Navy and the transformations of this of the oligarchy and the one of the first sugar houses in all of England are all located in this teeming parish that grows more than tenfold in about forty years um, and it's the space where a lot of people who weren't able to make it in the old systems of the of the city. Right, they weren't part of the old uh, oligarchy of the city of London. Um, are able to make new fortunes. Um, these are people who spread out around the world. Um, William Adams, who is uh, in the, the inspiration for the book Shogun, right? He's in that city. Christopher Newport, who founds Virginia, or doesn't found Virginia. He no, he doesn't found Virginia at all. But he has he um, he helps to explore Virginia, right? He's from this parish, you have people who are fighting uh, in the Mediterranean, on some cases on the side of the Ottomans, right? Who live in this parish. You have uh, parts of this parish that are dominated by women who are ruling while their husbands are at sea, working at, looking at Eleanor Hubbard's work a little bit there to help inform me. Um, you also have uh, underground religious movements, Baptists, people, who, some of the people who eventually run off to North America because they can't conform to the to the church in England and and form the some of the colonies in New England, um, and you have immigrants. You have people from all different continents. You have people uh, f- working out all sorts of questions of class and race and gender, and um, it's a really exciting place. So um, Stephanie is is my other project, um, and I just got a, a big grant from my university to do some digital mapping there that I'm really excited about. So those are my Ooh. two, those are my two projects. Um, look, the Elizabethan period is a period in in which the the flash doesn't play out, right? The 17th century is where everything sort of plays out, where London becomes the biggest, you know, the the Europe the one of the world cities where the empire sort of explodes, where the culture and the art really, really, but the Elizabethan period is the catalyst for so much of this. I would argue for almost all of it. Um, it's where my heart lies. It's where the change mm-hmm. happens. I'm a, I'm a child of a, of a period where things are changing enormously. Um, uh, where the, the economic systems and, and the people's sense of whether the world did or did not belong to them, um, that changed hugely in the, in the period. And the technological changes, that changed hugely in the period in which I've lived. Um, and I, I see these odd resonances, and I cannot wait to tell these stories. Well... Well, we do have to wait uh, for you to actually go do all that research. But in the meantime, we can, of course, read the book we've been discussing, again, titled A People's Reformation, Building the English Church in the Elizabethan Parish. Lucy, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute joy.